I'm Stephen Falla, and you're listening to Pipe and Drape, the only podcast that spotlights the creative minds behind the theater for young audiences industry. Every two weeks, I sit down with a children's theater professional to hear their stories about the audition, rehearsal, and development process of theater for young audiences. Each of them have bridged the path from youth to adulthood while living in worlds created for children. My guests have mounted shows small enough to fit in a minivan to productions so big they travel by caravan. You can join the conversation by emailing pipeanddrapestories at gmail.com or messaging pipeanddrapestories on Instagram. This is episode 10 of Pipe and Drape. Puppetry is a major part of theater for young audiences, and my guest today shares stories from her journey as a dancer to a Henson Intertaglia puppeteer and freelance puppet builder. Thank you for listening with me today. Today's guest is puppeteer and puppet designer and fabricator Arlie Chadwick. Arlie puppeteered off-Broadway, nationally and internationally in The Very Hungry Caterpillar Show. John Tartaglia's Imagine Ocean, Jim Henson's Dinosaur Train Live, That Golden Girls Show, a puppet parody, multiple live shows with Sesame Street, and danced regionally all over the country. Arlie's work as a puppet builder and costume designer and stitcher was seen in New York and across North America in shows with Rockefeller Productions, such as Paddington Gets in a Jam, That Golden Girls Show, and The Very Hungry Caterpillar Show, The Swedish Cottage Marionette Theater, New York City Ballet, Summer Theater of New Canaan, and the Theater for a New City. She shares her building and performance gifts with us on her channel, Puppets by Arlie, which you can find in this episode's show notes. Arlie has taken a break from creating, teaching, and performing to sit down with me in my Washington Heights apartment to discuss her work as a puppet builder and costumer in the New York City area. Arlie, welcome. Thank you for having me. How are you on this autumnal day? I'm very excited to be on this podcast because I am a longtime listener, first-time guest. So Arlie and I work together at the Swedish Cottage Marionette Theater in Central Park, and we spend some time in the Puppetmobile together bringing free theater out to all five boroughs of New York. And during that time, we have caught up with each other, caught our, our lives up a little bit. Uh, but I never found out uh, what what kind of things you were doing as when you were like a like a little kid. Like what games were you playing? As a little kid, I would you know uh, my parents have a great back great big backyard and uh, and they also watch a lot of PBS. So I remember as a little kid going out into the backyard and pretending and and playing masterpiece theater in the backyard. I pretended to be British. I would practice my British accent walking around in the backyard um playing in the dirt. Uh so that's I I guess that's one of my earlier memories of <laughs> of of theater as 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 a young as a young theater person. I love that combination <laughs> of uh backyard dirt and theater. That's so raw. <laughs> yeah. Did you want to be an actor when you grew up? I, I either wanted to be a comedian, a veterinarian, or a dancer. And uh, my mom told me that two of those don't make a lot of money. <laughs> and uh, then I never really decided until, until 
I'm still not decided. <laughs> Do you remember seeing theater when you were in elementary school? I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and there is a pretty successful locally owned dinner theater there called the Boulder Dinner Theater. And uh, actually, Colorado in the 90s was kind of a haven of dinner theaters. There was a lot of dinner theater activity. Um, and I remember my first show was in, I was, I was probably like early elementary school. My folks took, took me to a production of The Unsinkable Molly Brown there, probably 1988, something like that. Um, yeah. And I had been to several shows there, but I, I don't know if it ever translated that I wanted to do it, but I did really enjoy going to those shows. Do you remember what you ate? Why, yes, they have a... And they still have it. They have a really, f and all dinner theaters should have this, the chicken cordon bleu. You can buy them frozen, and then when you heat them up, they're delicious. You heard it here. I want to hear about your experience making costumes for marionettes. At the Swedish Cottage Marionette Theater, ah. most of our marionettes are about a foot tall? Yeah. And... There are so many of them because there are so many different shows and they need clothes to wear. What is it like designing clothes for a little wooden boy? If you're being official about it, you'll make a sketch. But sometimes things are moving, you know, things are behind and and you don't do that. But I usually do make a sketch. And then the next thing you do is you have to drape it, which means you take the you take two pieces of fabric, and you uh, envelope the puppet inside of it. So that way you can find out what the diameter, or how to find a, a pieces of fabric that will fit all the way around this like specialized body. Because you, you have to draft your own patterns each time. So, okay, so you drape. That's called draping when you sandwich the puppet inside two pieces of fabric. Then you, uh, then you trace where it would go together, and then you cut it out, and then you do something called truing the pattern, where you lay it down one side and trace it, flip it over, lay it on the other side and trace it, and then take the in-between. And then that's how you get a um, symmetrical shape of what you need to find um, a, p a pattern piece that will fit equally around this, this puppet shape that and this is the same process when you're costuming any, any like weird shaped, um, weird shaped puppet. And yeah. And then you, um, you, you build the, 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 the costume piece from uh, like, from like a, a sewing perspective. You make, you use the same type of idea when you make little pants and, you know, making blazers with collars and. Then you continue to sew, uh, like normal. Yeah. I do take a few short shortcuts because it they are so small and things won't necessarily show up but yeah that's the process of how to get started and if you want to see how to do this process it is on my youtube channel you can make your own jacket and vest for a marionette and you can make puppet pants how much time are you usually given to create a Not costume enough. <laughs> when when I'm approached, I usually I usually ask for what what the scope of it is so I can kind of judge. Um, the The simplest thing to make is like a puppet prairie dress. I can do that in in about like a few hours. 
But if it's more, if it's more intricate, like there's collars or and sleeves and more details, uh, that'll take more time. A week, two weeks, more weeks. More weeks are better. I like to know beforehand. <laughs> yeah. So when somebody approaches you to make make a, make a costume, that's what you should you should ask. What is the what is the scope of the project and how, when do you need it by? I this is, I think one of the scariest things in our industry is signing non-disclosure agreements. Have you signed those? I've signed a couple. Yeah. I had to sign one for an audition what? recently. For an audition? Yeah. Sometimes as a puppet builder, you have to sign non-disclosure agreements in order to tell the client if you're able to take on the build or not because they have their like project that they don't that they want to keep secret until they're ready but you can't tell them if you can build it until you have to so you have to sign the agreement so that they can show you what their project is that they need built wow yeah have you you have had to deal with that then i mean i mean it's not it's not a huge deal but yeah yeah and then you can say this this is too much no But then you walk around with that knowledge. Like, you walk around with that exciting knowledge that you know what show is coming up. Yeah. And you know you're not building it. At the cottage, their shows have a lot of puppets. Do they ask you to make costumes for all of them? I mean, if it's a new show and I'm the one that's building the costumes, yeah, you'd costume the whole show. And a thing specific with marionettes, they don't do costume changes well at all because their strings are through. So you have to build doubles if you need like a costume change in a marionette show. I have been asked to uh, refurbish costumes because they get gross and old. And uh, that's a little easier because you can take apart the previous costume, lift the pattern, like trace the, the pattern pieces. So that saves time. What are your resources for fabric? My resources are, are you writing this down? Okay, my favorite, my favorite fabric stores in the city are, for cheap, uh, Save-a-thon in Harlem on 103rd Street and 3rd Avenue. The problem with Save-a-thon is if you need to rebuild, like with Paddington, uh, I've built it several times, uh, the same costumes, and I need to have the same exact fabric each time. You can't go to Save-a-thon for that. They get what they get from wherever they get it, and when it runs out, you can't get more. So if you want to, if if it's a thing you might have to build multiple times, don't go to Save-a-thon. Uh, my other favorite place to go is um, Elegant Fabrics in the garden in the garment district. They're nice because they have like a little code that that you can write down and then they can always bring back the same fat the same exact fabric that you bought from them previously so for all the rockefeller stuff i try to go there and then if if it's like a specialized wool or something for suiting uh then i'll go to mood you know if possible whenever i'm building try to get a resource where you know you can buy the same exact thing again because it needs to be the same uh, each time you rebuild something. We don't inc- encounter that at the cottage very often, but at Rockefeller Productions, where they're making licensed characters, yes, they need the exact same thing because the publicity photos have to match whatever set are coming in. So it needs to look exactly the same. Did you study costuming? I did not. When I was a kid, I was in 4-H, 
and I and one of the one of the projects in 4-H is sewing and my my mom has um she's she's a seamstress and she through the 4-H program she taught me how to sew I even learned how to tailor wool suits as like a as a as a kid and I used to be in these uh competitions called the make it with wool contest they are fashion shows that happen at local malls put on by the National Wool Growers Association to promote people sewing with 100% wool and my the and I made like several suits and you know when you if you win you can win fabric and scissors and you know really glamorous stuff like Pendleton fabric like really nice 100% wool and it's got to be 100% wool and how you find out if uh, fabric is 100% wool is you take strands of it and you put it in bleach overnight and if it's all disappeared by the next morning it's 100% wool if there's still strands of plastic left over you can't use it so that's a good test for any of you who need to find out if you're using 100% wool or not and for when I was a teenager the last make it with wool competition I I uh I made a 100% wool gown for, like, prom. I made a wool gown. And I did wear it to a high school dance, and it was hot. <laughs> so that's my, that's my sewing journey. And it's, it's proven to be uh, helpful because I've, uh, I've gotten several seamstress jobs. Were you a puppet builder and costumer for companies like Rockefeller, and the cottage before you were a performer, vice versa, or were you hired? My degree is in dance. And then I worked for Sesame Street Live and I got a foot injury. And then I I was so distraught because I moved to New York to be a dancer. You know, I wanted to be Anne Reiking or whoever. And so I came, I couldn't renew my contract on the last, you know, I had this terrible foot injury and I was like, oh God, what do I do? And you know, when... When I'm in crisis, I go visit my friend Wendy in in Austin, Texas. And I went to her. And I was hanging out with her. And then she had to go to some event. And there was a fortune teller at the event. And so I went to this fortune teller. And I asked him, I said, will I ever dance again? And he puts out all the tarot cards. And he said, yes, but you'll have new legs. And I was like, what does that mean? And then two weeks later, I saw the, the audition notice for the Swedish Cottage Marionette Theater. And then I went to it, and I have, I have Sesame Street on my resume. Doesn't, it says the word, it's a dance job, it's a separate company, but it says the word Sesame Street. So I think that's why they thought maybe I might know anything about puppetry. And they hired me for some reason. And... That was my first puppetry job. And since then, I've been, I've been slowly doing more and more puppetry. And that's how I got into it. By accident. <laughs> you also worked on a massive show with dinosaurs. Yeah, I was on Dinosaur Train Live. That was, um, uh, that was a show produced by three companies. Uh, Henson. And Gables Grove, which was John Tartaglia's uh, company, and um, Mills Entertainment, which uh, is d- handled the 
the roadshow aspect of it. How was that? I mean, those those things are huge. You know, we had top-notch puppets, but uh, with puppet design, it is you can't predict all of the things that may happen to a puppet as it <laughs> performs on the road for like 10 shows a week. Uh, so we, we tried to keep the puppets together um, as much as we could. Uh, they were, they were, they were well made, but all puppets break. And that was one, one thing that we struggled with on that, on that show. At Hungry Caterpillar, we had, we, and children's theater shows do this a lot, where they either sell it as an extra incentive or just invite all audience members up to come on stage afterwards for pictures. And some, you know, and I, I've done it with adult shows, with uh, the Golden Girl show, but Hungry Caterpillar, parents always think that they need the kids to have snacks, and then the kids, they come up with the Cheeto dust on their hands, and they want to touch the caterpillar, and, oh. and you know, you're, you're holding it, and you're like, stick, you know, you try to keep the sticky fingers off of them. It's, it's, uh, it's a process. Oh my gosh. So because it can't be, like, washed. You have to, like, you use shout wipes to surface... Uh, clean it but you know you don't want your puppet that's very expensive or like takes a lot of like three months to build uh you don't want um cheeto dust on on your puppet on the star of your show were you the one that um built the caterpillar uh there's been several renditions uh 2017 i led the led the build of the off-broadway uh, production for Rockefeller Productions. It was 75 puppets. And so, and I built and then I like uh, rounded up fabricators to, to also help with the build. And then there were three more productions because they, uh, they, they uh, sell productions to other countries and other theaters. So I made, I've made three sets of like the actual caterpillars. Oh and so that's like the baby caterpillar and two hero caterpillars, the fat caterpillar and the butterfly. Were you working directly with the designer or were you just kind of given instructions and they're like, good luck? That is uh, something that the, the head of the company would navigate because when you're working with a licensed character, you have to be sure that their design shows up in the puppet that's made. And there's kind of a, uh, like a learning curve when you take a 2D picture and then you create it into a 3D object. And sometimes when you're using artwork, like the Eric Carl artwork that he makes that's all crazy and from different angles, it actually isn't real you know, like one one illustration would be one shape 3D and another illustration would be, another, you know, because sometimes the eyes are like on, on the side of the face or sometimes they're here. So you have to like navigate what what they want to combine all of those looks into, like what they decide should be the 3D look. And sometimes it is hard to find what the client wants when it becomes a 3D object. And you know they it's their property. They they have to approve it. Um it, they're on the line if it doesn't look like the essence of the character. 
Um, so that that's tough. That is that is a process that you go through. And at Rockefeller Productions, they do a great job navigating the relationship between the um, the companies that own the um, the companies that own the the characters and how it comes out in the puppet design. What is the coolest thing that you got to do because of children's theater? You know what? One of one of the most magical children's theater experiences I've ever had was I, I've done many shows for uh, deaf and hearing impaired. And so they bring, even in Imagine Ocean, uh, which was a show that was completely in the dark, uh, they gave our sign language interpreter these uh, bright neon yellow gloves and she would sign for the kids on stage with us oh, like off to to one side of course and I've always thought that was really cool but then one time in at a at a random theater in uh, Virginia somewhere I don't know we did a show for the uh, visually impaired kids and it really changed my perspective of who deserves to enjoy theater and how kids can enjoy theater. Because we did the show and then we went and we took the puppets. This was for Hungry Caterpillar, by the way. We, we took them into a meet and greet and we showed the kids the puppets. And it was it was so neat. The kids would, uh, I'd walk up and I would say, who would like to touch the purple cat? And, you know, kids would raise their hands. Then I'd take their hands and put them on the puppet. And then, uh, yeah, it was a... And it was a really amazing experience, and it taught me that I don't necessarily know who deserves to enjoy theater, depending on uh, who they are. And that was a really special show for me. I love children's theater so much. Nothing is more magical than getting to perform in another country in another language and then still have the audiences like under like understand and respond to you that's that's a magical experience like uh i remember for sesame street live i got to play uh rosita in mexico city and she's a big star there and it was fun and it's so it's so neat to see like how other countries respond like in all throughout Asia, it seems like everyone's very, very quiet and polite until, and you think, oh gosh, they, they must hate the show. And then at the end, they they roar up. It's neat. I love it. Also magical, go perform My Little Pony Live in Casper, Wyoming. People will love it. <laughs> or perform in Laredo, Texas. People, pe- the audiences all, all throughout Texas are amazing because, you know, in Texas, they always want to make it a party. You know, they 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 buy all the merch, and you know, it's it's a big to do. I like performing in Texas a lot. What was it like performing in a different language? Did you have to mech the puppet to a track in another yeah. language? Yes. How was that for you? You just learn the other. You learn. You just you just relearn. You just relearn the show. Wow. Well, you practice with the track and then you train your for sesame street live you train your hand i like children's theater because i like children's theater because it's all the fantastical things talking animals and um crazy situations and and fantasy situations and and those type of things 
It's it's either extreme boredom or extreme excitement or extreme anxiety. Those are the three emotions you can have on the road. How did you navigate those feelings when you're on the road? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Probably not in a healthy way. <laughs> Tell us. Tell us everything. We want to know. I, I, I do find, I don't know, being on the road with people, it feels like almost like an army buddy type of... Uh, type of relationship and uh, once you've been on the you know I don't trust anyone until I've been to Ohio with them nothing important about Ohio but the theaters in Ohio you know you get you get pulled through it so but yeah you you uh people you're on the road with uh you you form like uh an interesting bond and maybe not friendly but still still an interesting bond I'm sure you feel the same way, right? Oh yeah, because you're you're sweating with these people. You are working with these. People. You're in Ohio with these people. There are a lot of theaters in Ohio. There's a lot. Of there theaters. are the there are a surprising amount of theaters in Indiana. And I've performed in um, all states except Alaska, but I do have Puerto Rico. Did you perform in Hawaii? Yeah. What? Yeah. What show? Two productions of Sesame Street Live. It's amazing. Uh, on they got, they've got a great theater in Honolulu and another one in Maui. What what else did you do there? Oh, I mean all kinds of things. Went snorkeling, went to the beach, went on hikes, uh, went to the went to a, a luau type of thing. Yeah, like a dinner theater type of performance with with hula dancing. Hawaii's awesome. I love it. I can't believe you got to go there for work. Uh, yeah, it was a highlight definite highlight was that a big part of your tour just getting there and then getting back yeah because you oh that's true here's another thing when you when a road show has to go across the ocean you have to wait for a week for the set usually to be shipped because sometimes because it's usually too expensive to fly the gear it needs to be shipped and sesame street live had enough money that they would leapfrog sets so they could set they could send one set early uh while you performed with the other set and then by the time you arrived there the uh, you know the other set would be there uh, but that's only for companies that have enough money to have multiple sets oh when uh when hungry caterpillar went to uh when we first went to hong kong it was too expensive to send the set over so they did this badass thing where they sent uh, the plans for how to build the set and they built us a set and then trashed it at the end. <laughs> it was awesome. Was it identical to the of set course. you're used to? Yes, of course. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. That is cool, right? How has your work in this industry propelled you forward as, as an adult? No, 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 no. I, we are all addicted to theater. We're addicted to it and we just, at least this is my mindset. You just want to like get the next job. It's not a healthy relationship, but it's the relationship I have. So I've never been like, how, how does it, you know, I'm always just trying to get the next show, get, get gradually more glamorous and fabulous. Um, so that's how I approach my, not, not, this is not advice, but that's how I approach it. Arlie, thank you for speaking with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Arlie, how can people find more of your work and reach out to you? Uh, 
well, uh, you can reach out to me at puppetsbyarly at gmail.com. You can find me at puppetsbyarly uh, on YouTube. And then those are the preferred ways of you finding me. <laughs> I want to I wanna end the, S, the, the list there. <laughs> That's how to find me. All right, everyone. Go find her. You can join the conversation about theater for young audiences and find more pipe and drape content, including photos, quotes, and TYA news on Instagram at Pipe and Drape Stories. And please be sure to rate and review Pipe and Drape wherever you listen to podcasts. Each star given or review submitted helps future listeners find the show. Be sure to tune in every other Tuesday to hear Theater for Young Audiences creatives share their pipe and drape stories. Pipe and Drape is created and hosted by Stephen Falla and distributed by Anchor. Artwork for Pipe and Drape was created by Stephen Gordon and music was composed by Stephen Falla. Thank you for listening with me today. Then you ended up working at one of these dinner theaters then. Yeah, I worked at the Carousel Dinner Theater. I was in a, I was in a production of Cats. That was my favorite one that we did. Um, and this is one of my favorite stories. Our stage manager came backstage and um, he said, everyone, please watch out. There is a pepperoni on downstage left. And we didn't serve pepperoni at the dinner theater, which means that somebody came to the dinner theater with pepperonis and then threw one on the stage. And I, 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 I tried not to, I did slip on it and I made a huge grease stain across the stage. But, um, more questions about my glamorous life as a, (laughs) as a theater professional. (laughs) And Hungry Caterpillar, because it's all kids for some reason, the stage would get coated in raisins. There would... And I'm not sure why this is. Either parents are bringing like raisins as snacks for kids and then they're just, kids are just like leaking raisins all over and it gets smeared like like we had to like clean raisins off of the... And the problem with raisins is when, when it gets smeared onto the floor, it doesn't look like raisin anymore. It looks like poo stains. So yeah, our, our poor stage manager, she seriously had to mop after each um, like photo meet and greet because of the raisins. That's a problem. So watch out, you, you young theater creators. Watch out for the raisins. You'll have to clean those up.